Hello and welcome to the Six Tone Podcast, bringing you fresh voices from today's China. We're coming to you from Shanghai, and I'm Tian Jinghua. I'm Kevin Sumakas, and for our first episode, we're looking at milk. Ten years ago, China was hit by one of the biggest food safety scandals in its modern history. The industrial chemical melamine was found in milk powder. At least six infants died, and three hundred thousand were affected. China's booming domestic dairy industry was dealt a devastating blow. So, how has the milk industry changed since then? Recently, Six Tone's reporters traveled to northern China to find out. Today, we're joined by Six Tone editorial director Colin Murphy and reporter Lin Qiting, who worked on the story. Hi, guys. Welcome. So, you guys spent quite a bit of time in Inner Mongolia. Why did you choose to go there? Obviously, Inner Mongolia is one of the biggest milk producers in China, so that was an obvious candidate. But most importantly, it was the cow villages. These are villages that were purposely built at the beginning of the century, and herdsmen from the prairies were encouraged by the government to move there. Why was that? Well, there were several reasons for that. One was broader poverty alleviation program, but it also coincided more or less with the period where there were heavy sandstorms. Uh, that were affecting the capital, especially, and this was blamed on overgrazing by the herdsmen. So the idea was, let's move the herdsmen from the grasslands, put them in these cow villages where they can produce milk and help the country achieve its goal of becoming a milk superpower. Unfortunately, subsequent events meant that the outcome wasn't as desirable. The melamine scandal of 2008. That was a Big, big turning point for the dairy industry, and in particular for these smaller farmers, because the milk that they were providing to local milk stations was seen by many as being the cause of the melamine scandal, in that adulteration of milk was taking place at the milk stations that they were supplying. So it wasn't the farmers themselves who were adding the melamine, but they were the hardest hit. Right. You know, it's difficult to point and say this is where the melamine was added, and this is the person that's responsible. But in terms of the outcome, they definitely got the raw deal. So Qiting, one of the herdsmen turned cow farmers you interviewed for the story was a guy called Chen Guotian.、Uh, what was his story? He's a herdsman that's living in in Mongolia. Fifteen years ago, he and his family were relocated from the Peri to the cow villages in a government project called the Ecological Migration. The in Mongolian government moved in total around one hundred thousand herders to these cow villages, where the government built up the houses and offered them loans to buy cows. Chen was one of the herders who sold all his sheep, cows, and horses, and learned to do dairy farming for the first time in his life. But he told you that milk ruined his life.、Uh, why did he say that? He struggled to sell milk after the two thousand and eight scandal. And according to a researcher that we interviewed, these cow villages were never too successful, even before the scandal, because the families they have just a few cows, and because it's their first time to do this job, and they have to sell the fresh milk every day to the local milk station. So it's difficult for them to negotiate the price. They have to sell the milk at a relatively cheap price. So in the end, they never managed to make a lot of money out of it. And after the scandal,、uh, they struggled even more. And what is Cheng doing now? In 2013, when Mengniu, so one of the big dairy companies, stopped collecting milk from individual dairy farmers, he had to sell all of his cows. And he went to a nearby city, drove illegal cabs for a while, and then he worked in the construction sites. 
for some local government projects. Unfortunately, he hasn't received a large part of his salary in these projects. So the two of you travelled all over northern China reporting on this story. What were some of the challenges you encountered? Getting up early in the morning. <laughs> Always difficult. Yeah, there was obviously the size of Inner Mongolia is pretty enormous. So there were lots of bumpy bus rides. It was early winter, so it wasn't too bad. It was still pretty cold when we went to visit the former house of Chang. It was so cold that my iPhone froze, not to mention my fingers. That was pretty um, harrowing. But arguably, the biggest challenge was when we got back in our office. We had all these materials. Now, how to make them more than just that. So that entailed researching the industry, speaking to experts, understanding the history, the cultural significance of milk in China, but also going back to melamine scandal, trying to understand what exactly happened at that time and what has happened subsequently. We had to balance these two elements, the anecdotal with the explanatory elements, but also do it in a way that is compelling and to do justice to the story. So that's always the biggest challenge. Yeah, there's some really interesting visual content in the story, especially I uh, really enjoyed the historical advertisements that show sort of how the perception of milk has changed in China. So what was the most surprising thing that you found during your research and your travels? I think for me, what struck me was the fact that even though almost a decade has passed since the scandal, the, the repercussions are still visible on a number of fronts. So for example, the shift to the mega farms, that's definitely something that has not necessarily been caused by the melamine scandal, but definitely was expedited. Now we have more than 50% of farms in China with more than 100 cows, for example, whereas that was 20% about a decade ago. What is also interesting is the consumer side. 10 years is a long time, but is it long enough to regain trust? Do Chinese people still have confidence in Chinese milk? And I would say, not yet. It's coming back, but it, there's still a lot of people who are concerned about what it means to be drinking Chinese-produced milk. And as you write in the story, the consumption of milk is still lower in China compared to its neighbors, for example, Japan and South Korea. Correct. Given the, the size of that scandal, I think the dairy companies have done a fairly good job in recovering quickly. There's still a long way to go. Part of the reason is because there is still some doubt remaining in the minds of consumers about whether Chinese milk is safe. Qiqing, as a Chinese person, did you drink a lot of milk growing up? Yeah, I have to because my parents kind of forced me to do it. <laughs> Yeah, I think my personal experience with milk is a typical example of these Chinese born in the early 1990s, that we are kind of forced to get used to milk, even if you hate it at the beginning, your parents will make you do it. For example, my parents, they don't drink milk at all, especially my mother. She has severe lactose intolerance. So it's fascinating that my parents of generation who are used to drinking more soybean milk, now their kids are all drinking fresh milk. Compared to soybean milk, that fresh milk is seen as nutritious that you should buy for your kids for them to grow taller and stronger. But is it actually fresh milk though? Not all of them. Uh -huh. When I was growing up, it's more the UHT milk that you can store for a few months without a refrigerator. When I was 13 years old, I was going to a boarding school in Guangdong province. Every kid would bring boxes of Mengniu or Yili milk. Those are the big brands. Um, every week and store them in the dormitory. That school had many rules. For example, candies, chocolate, these kind of high sugar snacks were forbidden in the dormitory and our consumption of ice cream were strictly controlled. We could only eat a few ice creams per week. It's quite a lot already. <laughs> <laughs> it's warm in Guangdong. 
<laughs> and the school would give us the small coupons. And so we even had a black market for trading these wow. ice cream coupons. Anyway, milk at that time was one of the most correct choice. Apart from the milk that the parents bought us in the dormitory, that school will offer us a carton of milk and fresh fruit every day. Mm. So it's not just fresh milk, they're also chocolate milk, blueberry milk or strawberry yogurt, the flavor well, of milk. that's interesting. I mean, they don't necessarily strike me as being particularly nutritious types yeah. of milk. But having said that, it's also interesting to note that during your time at school, the country was basically telling people, this is good for you, drink more milk. And then suddenly, fast forward to 2008, and now there's chemicals in the milk. It does help to put into context how that was such a major shake to the confidence of the Chinese consumer, but also to the industry itself. I know that a lot of people preferred foreign milk after that. I'm often asked by relatives to bring milk back from trips. Do you think that the domestic milk industry will regain the trust of consumers? There is evidence to suggest that people are coming around, but some experts that I spoke to point the finger at the dairy industry and say, those companies tending to put the emphasis more on the image of good quality milk rather than the, the substance, but also trying to push the product more and more to the premium end, which is obviously taking it away from many, many people who can't afford those premium products. Some of the people that I spoke to would say to the dairy industry here, it needs to take a closer look at how it's producing and marketing its milk, particularly fresh milk. Yeah, I think this question whether Chinese consumers had become more confident in Chinese milk, it's a question that we ask constantly after the scandal happened. For example, the Dairy Association of China, every year they would publish articles and try to reassure the consumers that we have very safe milk already. If you look at the data of the big dairy companies' um, sales, after the scandal, for example, Ely, the company that have contaminated product in the scandal, their sales recovered quickly. And one expert that I interviewed, he said that if Sanlu, the company in the center of the scandal, which was the biggest baby formula company in China at that time, if Sanlu didn't go bankrupt that year, maybe in the following years that its sales would pick up right afterwards. It shows that at that time that Chinese consumers have very limited choices, especially in smaller cities and rural areas. You can only buy the products that you have on the shelves. Right now, I think the situation is a bit different. The consumers living in, uh, in big cities, you can afford better quality and pricier products, especially mothers. They would be willing to pay more to get imported milk. For example, I have a friend, she would make sure everything that go into her baby girl's mouth is all imported, including wow. baby formula and other things. Just on the confidence issue, I would say that some of the dairy companies are actually trying to do something to address that directly. So for example, when we were in Shijiazhuang, we went to a dairy sort of tourist attraction. Oh, the theme park. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of like a Disneyland for cows, but not quite. There's several thousand cows there, but uh, literally like half a million visitors last year. And they came to visit and see how cows are milked and to play with the calves, to pose for photographs. And then there's a sort of a science museum element to it. So they go in there and they go through all the different exhibits that show where the milk comes from, how it's processed, etc. And the underlying goal of this, and they're quite clear about this, is that they want to educate the visitors about the value of milk to show that it's safe. 
they recognize themselves the need to do that. They're quite open about that. So it sounds like the domestic milk industry has rebounded from the um, 2008 scandal. Has this also helped the small-scale farmers? The short answer to that is not really, because at least among the people that we interviewed in Inner Mongolia, their lives are pretty tough. For example, Liang Yu and his wife Naran Timek. You know, this couple, both in their 50s, they had also moved from the prairies to the cow villages, invested in purchasing cows. They have seven, of which four produce milk. And basically every day they get up in the morning, 5 a.m., milk the cows. Uh, they have a very primitive milking machine, but it is somewhat automated. They bring the cow in one by one, then they produce milk in the morning, milk in the afternoon, which they then take to a local dairy market. Is that enough to make a living for them? Not quite, because in terms of income, they can make about 10,000 renminbi a month. But once the costs are taken away from that, their take-home pay, what they're living on is about 1,000 uh, renminbi, which is $160 a month. Very frugal, very basic existence. Others are doing a little bit better. We met one dairy farmer by the name of Bat. His case is a little bit exceptional, I would say, because he also moved from the prairies into the cow villages, but he was one of the officials that were behind encouraging people to do so. He has managed to position himself much better than, say, Liang and his wife. He is now trying to change from milk production into cheese. And he also has aspirations, at least, of developing his own brand. But still, even in his case, it's quite a struggle. With all these changes in the last decade, how did these farmers feel about talking to journalists about their stories? Well, I would say in the case of Liang and his wife, they were, you know, pretty much focused on their day-to-day, -day, but they were relatively open. They invited us into their house, they were very hospitable, and they shared their details of their day-to-day -day life. Cheng, he was definitely more forthcoming, but obviously he had more grievances that he wished to air. And this is something that happens quite a lot. When we're reporting in the field in China, many people feel that they have no voice. They've gone to the local government, they've gone to their party representative and find that their case is going nowhere. So then when they do eventually meet a journalist, they tend to jump at that opportunity with the expectation that once their story gets out, their situation is going to be resolved. We know that that's not the case and we have to manage their expectations accordingly because one story is not necessarily going to make that change. It might contribute in some way to improving the community's situation through greater awareness. Well, thanks so much, Colin Murphy and Ling Ting. Today's episode is produced by Doris Wong and Zhang Ru. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and visit our website at sixtone.com. That's S-I-X-T-H-T-O-N-E.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Tian Jinghua. And I'm Kevin Schumacher. Goodbye.